NC Podcast. My name is Natasha Collins and I am the founder of NC Real Estate, which includes its members club for landlords and property investors to build a profitable property portfolio that completely aligns with their goals. This week, I have a super exciting guest. I have got David Hunt here with me. Hi, David. Hi, Natasha. So we know each other through working together at UCM. You teach on valuations, I teach on property management, right? Yep, yeah, we sat together for a while and now you've, now you've moved off. <laughs> and we would have the best conversations about our property investments rather than sitting there doing, I guess, the admin. Doing any actual, doing any actual work, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I wanted to bring David on today, one, to talk about valuations, but two, to also talk about your property portfolio and what you've been building as well. Um, because I think it's an interesting conversation to listen to it from a surveyor in the industry and also someone who is building a property portfolio. So should we start from the very yeah. beginning and talk about your career path to date and then we can jump into your investments from there? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, it's nothing, nothing terribly unusual in my final year of school. I, I spoke to you know, many people in different professions. I think actually, I really actually wanted to join the military, but it didn't quite work out for me that way. Um, my father put me in touch with some surveyors he knew to talk to. Uh, he you know, thought that was the career that he wished that he had followed, that he had pursued. And I, I think I went into uh, various offices in Glasgow to meet them over a coffee and ask about their job. And I wasn't actually sure about what surveyor does uh, the, the various property industry roles seem to overlap with that, you know, whether it's a person uh, mapping the, the ground of the theodolite or valuing a house or project managing a build, building site. I, I wasn't so sure. I mean, everybody knows what an architect does, but and everyone maybe has heard the term chartered surveyor, but the words, the, you know, that phrase is so broad that it, it could mean so many things. And, um, I think well, at the time, in the late 90s, there wasn't such a, a degree of specialisation in the industry. And most surveyors at the time, they, they would have been, they would have described themselves as general practitioners working in small traditional partnerships. Uh, they might deal with agency one day, rating another day, valuation on another property management. And I mean, speaking to the, speaking to these people, well, what appealed to me was the fact that I would be in an office all day. I didn't mm -hmm. want to be just stuck, you know, a computer. Uh, but you'd actually get to go out and say, you go to uh, client offices and go to inspect properties. And it is kind of thinking about, as I'm saying this, I realise that my job at the university is mostly sitting in a, an office all day and I don't really have that opportunity to go out on site. Um, what else did I do? I went to local university, actually, to speak to one of the, the lecturers or one of the professors and uh, they tried to, they have, it wasn't an open day, it was actually a one-on-one -on -one meeting mm -hmm. and they stressed that, that the subjects also that they teach or did teach at the time were part, as part of their bachelor's degree in real estate management meant that you learn many other useful business skills, uh, computing, statistics, construction, project management, law, um, and not just pure surveying so I thought that degree would be good broad qualification um, as well as being you know specialized as and vocational mm -hmm. and uh, what was important about it is that that 
degree offer to one year work placement, uh, which I spent with a, a small traditional firm of surveyors doing mostly residential valuations for home buyers, but also uh, had some exposure to agency work. I let a small shop. Uh, I had to do a lot of probate valuations, um, sort of inheritance tax valuations, um, and rating and assessment. And then after graduation, I got a job with uh, with the government in the, the valuation office agency. And that takes me up to, to uh, uh, graduation, just post-graduation. And then from there, you've had a bit of a varied career where you've worked all over the EU, you now do global talks, you're with the universities. So tell me about that. Uh, yeah, well, that's that's the, the real perk of the job. That's the real um, exciting part of the job is the, the business trips, uh, the travel. I, I always had the idea to work abroad um, out of a sense of travel, uh, travel adventure. Mm-hmm. You know, visiting a country only gives you so much the idea of a place. You have to live there, learn the language. You, you know, I, I taught English as part of a university project, a uh, summer project as a, a volunteer in 1999. I taught English in Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, back at the time where that region was still developing, um, it really was a, a frontier place. There were no budget airlines. You needed a visa to visit some of these countries back then. These are countries that are now in the European Union, but back then, you, some of them you needed you need to go to the embassy and get a visa before you went there. And uh, also, I didn't know many people that had been to these places, um, so that was a sort of a sense of uh, sort of the exciting, the unknown. And then, you know, around two thousand and four, two thousand five, I was keen to move. I'm working in England. Uh, I wanted to expand my horizons. Where I was didn't have many opportunities for what to do after you become chartered, you get become a qualified uh, valuation surveyor in, in my case. And, uh, you know, I looked around at jobs in Western Europe and most of the time in that, that period of time seemed to want you to know the language. If you wanted to work in the Paris office, you needed to speak French. If mm-hmm. you wanted to work in uh, Frankfurt, you needed to know German. And it's not necessarily like that now, you know, 15 years uh, further on, uh, but at that time, further further east, this was not a problem. So uh, I applied for some roles. I actually wanted to work in Budapest. I went to all the big firms there, and uh, one of them, I spoke to one of them, the sort of head of the that region, and they were a bit like, "Oh, I might be in London in six weeks' time. Can you come down and maybe we can do something?" Then it's basically phone interviews. But that same, that same, uh, uh, he was a director of the company. He he'd gone to some international event where he met the the head of the, the their Kiev office in Ukraine, and they were desperate for somebody because no, Ukraine wasn't a really appealing place to go. Nobody really knew much about Ukraine mm-hmm. at that time, and you know he phoned me up and said, "Can I come out this weekend?" <laughs> Oh, no, I said, well, it's a bit too soon. Okay. Oh, well, about the following weekend. So they just flew me out and I spent two days seeing the apartment. I would stay in, um, being shown around the office, being taken around the city, seeing the nightlife and saying, look, you're not going to be on your own out here. We've got a nice community and that. And I, I couldn't, really, couldn't really say no. And, you know, I think one of the perks about, you know, going to a developing country is... Uh, a young professional is that you you can often leapfrog in, in rank, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so I became from a, a surveyor to a newly chartered surveyor, I became senior surveyor, or a senior surveyor could, you know, step up to associate, uh, associate partner, associate director. So that was that was also a, a huge appeal. Yeah. Um, and uh, I spent almost four years in that country. Mm-hmm. Um, and being 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 in a, a sort of a, a small office and being a sort of token foreigner, or being not token foreigner, being the only foreigner, I, I got to get involved in everything. So if a if a if a Scandinavian client came in wanting property management services, I was wheeled out to sit in the meeting. And give a sort of a spiel about the development opportunities in that country or if somebody came uh, if somebody from spain came wanted to buy shopping malls then it would be the same we'll just get the, the native english speaker out to do it so i got to deal with that, that 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 pitching side of things that business side of things building a rapport these were skills that i never really learned in the public sector with the valuation office agency, and that—that that was a a, a, a a fantastic place to learn. And of course, there's other, you know, other advantages. I got to, I got to do work in Kazakhstan. I got to do work in Russia. I went to, I used to go to Russia, um, you know, fairly fairly frequently at one time. Um, being a small expat community, I got to know everybody at the, the the british embassy or the the canadian embassy or the us embassy and get invited to a lot of social events and meet ambassadors and uh, i met i met the the first uh us secretary of homeland security just there a man called uh, tom tom ridge just just met him at a party i met i met the old spanish prime minister at, uh, at one of these these events and i met a swedish swedish king and wow uh, um, a Dutch prince about these sort of things just by being there so I got to fly in a, a private jet with uh, clients a, a merchant a famous New York based merchant bank flew me around the country in a, a, a private jet to show some schemes that they were thinking of investing in so that, that was something that you know I'll never, I'll never get that time back um, and then that that's at the end uh well, later on, I worked in uh, worked in Romania, worked in Poland. I've done valuation work in the all over the Balkans, uh, everywhere from maybe Latvia down to Slovenia to Bulgaria. So I've got to I got to go visit quite a lot of countries as well. And uh, I think what you asked something about talks. That's something that I've had come to do since moving to the uh, university, mm-hmm. where I got the chance to. Uh, uh, prepare, you know, CPD type classes for developing markets as part of us, you know, staying in touch with our alumni as well as trying to recruit new students. I've had the opportunity to 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 uh, go to Africa a couple of times, and I've also I've also you know when working in education, uh, what we remember we've got we've got years and years and years of work experience, and we're now being taught how to talk mm-hmm. and how to teach that uh, I've been asked to do some private uh, training as well in Central Europe and uh, a couple of other irons in the fire, so to speak, but I'm just not sure how to make make it all work. Uh, I guess you know, we have students from all over the world mm-hmm. and many of them say, hey, I saw what you did in Nigeria. 
can you can you come out to Uganda and do the same? Can you come out to Zambia and do the same? Uh, another one was Malawi. So I just have to try and find a way <laughs> to to join all these these dots together, and I'll get to get to hopefully go out and see these countries also. Amazing. So just through property, for everybody who's listening, David has had to have has had this amazing experience of being all the way through Europe, traveling in the world, and that continues. So that's awesome. So then let's talk about what goes on closer to home. So you also have your own investment portfolio. So can you tell us about your strategy and what type of investor you are? Um, I, I start off, I've never been that self-reflective, but I would, I would definitely say that I was cautious. I've seen several crashes, property crashes during my teenage years. There was uh, there were lots of people in the UK suffering from this problem of negative equity, a term that we heard heard a lot often in the news and on TV, but I didn't didn't quite fully understand till I was older. And this was a huge 1990s crash, and that was maybe a a lesson uh, to me that my goal has uh, informed my strategy, and that's always been to save a deposit. Mm-hmm buy a property nowadays i guess it's 25 percent of the property value uh with a 75 percent loan and then take uh, what i've done recently is take a two-year term then use all the income from that uh, not to live off not to spend uh, for as long as i'm working anyway um i use all that income to overpay um that mortgage to try and pay down the capital Mm-hmm. Um, the idea being to try and get that mortgage to a sixty percent loan to value over two years. I have to put in some other cash as well, and uh, the, the the strategy was after two years to renegotiate that mortgage with the benefit of a, a lower rate and thus thus spreading that profit margin. Um, the idea being based uh, that all the loans I've had is common in the UK anyway that you you can overpay up to 10% of that outstanding loan amount each year. Now, uh, a couple of things was that, that, I mean, that logic was fine until, well, some say the vote to leave the European Union, but arguably it was uh, before that, when there was when this uh, 3% property duty, I think it was mm-hmm. the 3% property duty, it was after it, and the, the new tax rules on offsetting interest payments, after, after that came in, um, it sort of skewed the market a little bit. Banker, banks or mortgage providers had money to lend, uh, but without the demand. And we saw that spread between that 60% and that 75% uh, get smaller and smaller and smaller uh, and would often get eaten up with the, you know, ever higher arrangement fees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the like... Um, I think it was a strategy. Where did this come from, maybe? Um, when I actually started, I started thinking about this. I was at university. Uh, I remember meeting a financial advisor who said he owned 15 properties, and he said that he started off as a student because he needed somewhere to live, and he only invested in these certain areas because uh, because of the sort of underlying factors about them. And he said that he talked to him about the risk that anybody Never default, he said. Only three in thirty years, which he thought was was pretty pretty good. I say default, abscond without paying or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I thought I, I liked I liked those odds. And back then, you could get very very attractive loan to value ratios 
Um, the buy-to-let as a mortgage product only came in in the late 90s, uh, so it was still quite a, a kind of a new a new world. Um, I think I needed my father as a guarantor, uh, but he thought it was a, a good thing to get on the, the property ladder. And uh, at this time, I remember there was kind of a national craze about getting into property in maybe, say, the early 2000s. A lot of TV shows about this, um, but the, the, the appeal to me wasn't get rich quick. The appeal to me was to build a, a, a semi-passive income. So it's with this income, I would have flexibility to do what I want to do. And I, I did. I was able to take uh, time out work. Nine years ago, I moved to South America and learned Spanish or tried to learn Spanish over 10 months. I took out time to study a postgraduate at Glasgow University. Um, so I figured that this income really is not, not to, I, I'm not attracted to the idea of living in a yacht or fast cars or anything you see at some of these property training seminars that you, that you see advertised. I just wanted uh, enough income to be flexible uh, with life. And it's, I think it's, it's pure luck that I actually find the whole process of researching a property and looking at markets and looking at achievable rents and the mortgage rates and doing the, that sort of sums. I find that quite interesting. I would, I would do that as a hobby mm-hmm. um, anyway. Um, I think you asked about a bit more about, about strategy. Uh, when I say I'm, I'm cautious, uh, I like to be safe. You won't hear of this at any of these property training seminars, Mm-mm. which to me seem to concentrate on constant expansion, buy property, release the equity, buy more. And that's not something I'd be personally comfortable with. I'm quite risk averse I, I see a value in having a completely unleveraged property and maybe if i had lots of unleveraged properties i would start uh, expanding with some of my assets but still I, I remember i remember what happened what happened in the 90s with family friends who, who went bust uh their homes repossessed etc because because they were betting on an ever-expanding market and i i say well, we are going to have crashes in future but um fine but i'll i hopefully when that happens i won't owe very much in my properties mm-hmm. I, if i don't have a tenant i'll just reduce the rent a little bit it's not a, a big deal um as long as i'm healthy and working uh so what other things the numbers the numbers you know i look at properties the strategy has always been to sort of test that rental income against the mortgage payment um, so that I can see the monthly difference or annual difference would satisfy bank stress tests. Um, you can build a model. These are things I've learned as a, a valuer. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, I, I, I'm not. I'm not really driven by first two years returns. In any case, you know, I aim to get to that sixty percent. Then I find after two years of having, you know, put in that work and put that income into that mortgage. Uh, I find that uh, several things happen at the one time, and that is it's usually a time where rent can be increased. Mm-hmm. And that's at the same time that the mortgage payments are are reducing. Yeah. So uh, so if you if you take nothing out for two years, you find you're in a better better position. And I say it's not get rich quick, it's get rich slowly or get comfortable mm-hmm. slowly. Yeah. Um, maybe some other things... Uh, I try to invest close to home. Mm-hmm. Started with properties in Glasgow, where I'm from. 
Uh, I have one of my own there, share one with my brother. He's been living in Gloucester, uh, which has been offering, as a town has been offering higher returns than say surrounding Pierce, Cheltenham, Bristol, or, or even Glasgow. So I, I, mean, I sold a flat in Glasgow that made maybe a four and a half percent return. And for that, I could buy three in Gloucester, making a minimum of seven uh, without going into, you know, using them as HMO type properties or Airbnb type properties. These are just sort of the basic, uh, uh, you know, the headline figures. Mm -hmm. Although, I mean, three properties with three mortgages. Remember that, again, if you go back to these these property training seminars, these expensive property training seminars, they talk about all the amount of properties they own, but they don't always say that they have the same number of mortgages, the same number of liabilities to, to keep servicing. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other the other thing is, is being cautious and safe and risk averse. There's a type of property I prefer, and that is one that I would live in myself. It's not going to get the highest return, uh, which would be achievable in riskier areas. But if I lose my job or something happens, and I think I can always run and live in one of my properties, I, I don't mind that. I, you know, I'm, I'm not a... I'm not, uh, you know, I, I mean, when I say it's one I could live in, I just like it to, if it's not on the first floor, I like it to have a lift. You know, I like it to have uh, secured parking, preferably a second bathroom. <laughs> okay, so that's... Did, did I answer your question? You completely <laughs> answered my question. I, 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 can, I can sometimes go off and uh, <laughs> uh, just... Picking things out my my head. You completely answered my question about your strategy. So thank you for that. And I think that's a completely different strategy to what other investors may have been told to do before. But I think it's a wise strategy because you are mitigating against risk, which is so important at the moment because we don't know where we really are. And we're going to get to a property cycle question in a second. Um, But thank you for sharing that. I think it's really, 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 really helpful. So, David, next up, I've got questions from within my Facebook group. Can we do a bit of a quick fire on them? Um, yeah. Uh, yes, okay, go, go ahead. Okay. If I, can, if I can't answer, I'll say I can't. I'll, I'll say I might have to um and okay. err and think about it. That's yeah. fine. That's fine. Okay, so as a purchaser, since you're paying the hefty valuation fee in many cases, why don't you have the right to ask lenders questions about any issues that were raised in the valuation? Um, I don't know. I don't know if you don't have the right. It's maybe more that the the uh, the banks are such huge beasts of companies that they can't act as the middleman between yourself and you know the value the person who prepared. The, the valuation and remember that that surveyor works for the lender mm-hmm. and he's working on behalf of the bank's risk management when i worked uh, with risk management um process when i when i worked say going back to my internship year my apprenticeship year um we'd be instructed more normally by the buyer to look at the property and then we do a full survey for them because uh, because they, you know they're spending a lot of money, mm. they would they would just pay to have a survey done, and then the bank would come to us once they've got their they've got their once it's all been agreed and it's going ahead, the bank would ask for us to give them an extract, and that was fine. And uh, now in the two thousands, early two thousands, banks started to chase business. They would start 
you know, start looking for incentives to attract your customer, they would throw in the survey perhaps for free. Okay. But really, then the, the, that surveyor is working for them. Um, what's more, I mean, if you see the report, there'll be a name in the <laughs> signature. You can you can always give them a call. I, I when when I worked again when I worked in that field with the client usually instructing us, then instructing my company. Um, if I just said no, I can't do that. If I was rude, if I was unprofessional, then the client would just appoint another surveyor next time. Mm-hmm. Okay, now the, the banks though don't have. Uh, I mean, they're 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 a step removed. And I think I'm saying how expensive you know you buying a buying a, a property is. It's one of the most expensive things that most normal people will ever do in their lifetime. Uh, so I mean, the cost of a survey would obviously. A very small in comparison and gives you that extra extra layer of 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 data especially if it's an older property you know and a new flat etc is unlikely to show up any any problems so i, but I would i would have tried to get a, a full survey full survey done mm-hmm. okay so you instruct it yourself rather than using the bank yeah oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay Next pay, pay six seven hundred pounds i mean if you're paying yeah. 130 to two hundred thousand on a whatever it is on uh, I mean, paying that is uh, is going to going to be worth it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I uh, mean, only when you you've done all your own research. I mean, I wouldn't. You can't, you know, bid on ten properties, get turned down for all, and start. You find out you've been you know spending seven thousand pounds on building surveys. I mean, obviously, you have to be a bit more careful when you sort of pull that trigger. Mm-hmm. So next question, what are the key sources used for assessing the impact on value of a property of the quality of fixtures and fittings and other intangibles like an outside office? Um, well, you can't, you can't, re- there's no reference guide. If we're talking about residential property, there is uh, the surveyors and the estate agents, they know they're, they're patched. They know they've built up such, knowledge of that area that they can tell the difference between two almost identical properties one with a, a newer kitchen or one with a better uh, bathroom forever there's no sort of rule there's no um, matrix and table that you can look up to find that in- information ultimately everything is you know what would the market pay for uh, you mentioned you mentioned an extra office sorry is that yeah, like, like an a outside, garden office yeah well I don't know if, if it's Hard standing. I mean, that might that might appeal to you know somebody obviously who has a runs a business from home. Other people might find other uses uh, uses for it. But yeah, there's no you can't really just look up. You just you get to know an area. You ask an agent. You ask a, a valuer. I mean, we talk about this. Remember this idea of a surveyor, this valuer. When they're working in residential property, they tend to stick to one patch. Mm-hmm. You know, my, all my all my experience really was in Glasgow, particularly in the west end of Glasgow. If I was asked to go and do a survey in uh, another city, I, I I couldn't do that. I'd have to instruct or or either uh, subcontract somebody else to do it or tell the client this is why I can't do that. I mean, it's the it's the RICS, one of the RICSs. Um, forget what they call them. Code of, codes of practice really you have to you have to know your ability and your your limits so these these valuers i mean ask your valuer ask a valuer ask a um an estate agent because they will know how that 
you know, the effects of improvements or indeed dilapidations on a property. I don't think you can just look up a look up a, a reference guide. Okay, so that leads us quite nicely onto the next question. What are the most reliable sources to find out property market latest figures and trends? Most reliable sources, surveyors and valuers again. <laughs> they, they keep their own. They keep their own records. And when I worked in this firm, uh, I used to have to update their records because I was very junior. I'd have to look at the card index system because they were very very old fashioned and then see, you know, for each building, had we done a, a valuation in there, in there before, et cetera, what was, what was the value? But for, for, for uh, and uh, I'd have to, uh, yeah, I'd have to look at, uh, what was it called? The Saisins, we don't know, what's the English? The Land Registry. <laughs> so this is where I would go. There are certain free websites, uh, you think of some of the big, the, the, the house, estate agent online sales aggregators, Zipla, right move, etc. But they they all link to the land registry mm -hmm. and it's now now free. Um, there are also several banks that publish the data. It used to be I say HBOS, but it's not HBOS. It's Hall just say Halifax. Halifax have uh, a house price index and you can get that data uh, and see but it, it might just be based on what they're lending. And the price values they're lending on, but you know, last year I had to do a big research project uh, in the office, property research project, where I looked at the land registry and took out that data myself. I looked at a certain area, I looked at uh, types of houses there because it does it does drill down into those type of houses. I looked at the sales prices. I took out outliers and I just made charts myself out of that that raw data, so that way I can see. Uh, uh, where the trend was, uh, where where the the figures were, and how how that particular zones had been going over time, or you, you simply click on the button and it'll tell you on a regional basis in mm -hmm. the UK, or you can just click Scotland, or just click Wales, or just click England. I say regional, you can just click Southwest or Northumbria, uh, or or Northumberland, or no Northumbria, North Northeast, Northwest, sorry. Um, and you can just get get that data, and it's it's free, and it's a, you just have to learn learn to use it. But if it, if you're asking about if if it's a question about you know where or if 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 you're sorry if your member who's asked the question is thinking more about uh, where can I see where house prices are to go in the future? Well. I mean, if, if I knew that, I'd, I'd, uh, you know, I, I, I would maybe be thinking of that, you know, or that that Lamborghini, because we can't really predict those those things. It's uh, it's um, uh, you can only really look back, I think, from this information. Okay, so then, okay. nice question to move on to then. So, do valuers believe in the eighteen-year property cycle? Um, I, I don't. I don't. I can't talk for for all valuers, but I don't I don't know. This this is sort of a buzzword that this birds term that's emerged in the last few years because nobody I don't remember anybody talking about this when I was at university or when I was looking at property originally. We we had a crash in the nineties. We had an international financial crisis in the late two thousands. There might have been a coincidental eighteen years between them, but when was the the crash before then? Um, 
there was there was oil price shocks in the seventies. Properties in Glasgow, uh, for example, doubled in price between was it seventy one and seventy two. But I wouldn't say that it was necessarily a a, a, a a crash. I mean, properties do go through cycles, but uh, there's they generally go upwards through cycles. You know, the, the value generally goes through up, upwards, and you can't compare the situation of the UK. Uh, market leaving the ERM uh, in '92, uh, and say the same thing happened again in 2000, what, 2007, 2008. I'd say that's a, an 18-year property cycle crash. I think it's it's pure pure coincidence, and I don't know what other valuers believe. But I've never never you know heard anybody really seriously talk about this or any. Um, serious academic research done on this. It's just like a, a meme, a phrasal meme. Okay, so next question. How will valuers be affected by the digital re revolution in uh, lending on the horizon and how will they respond? And I guess that then ties nicely into our automated valuation models, a real threat to valuers. Um. I know about I know more about appraisal valuation model mass appraisal. Um, I'll, I'll start I'll start with that. I mean I I I've um, I was asked this recently by somebody in Romania who'd been to a talk uh, about this, and they said, "Am I not worried about it?" And I think I don't I don't know I, I don't know where that talk came from. I don't know anything beyond it. But what I said there was that. Um, for the foreseeable future, anyway, uh, they might be a, more of a useful tool for valuers. They can't replace valuers. I can see it as a risk management tool on the part of lenders. They can take a value, the lender can take a value from a surveyor and compare it with their, their mass appraisal model mm -hmm. and see if it sits in. That's fine. If it doesn't, then maybe look a bit more. Uh, and if they can flag it up for more questions. These um, automated valuation models are currently they give a figure or a range of valuation figures, but they can't they can't really replicate the thought process of a buyer. They can't they can't recognise property condition. They can't detect dry rot, woodworm you know, as negatives, or even positives such as that feeling you get when you look at a property from outside that uh, curb appeal. Say they can't it won't know about any special period features internally that have been re retained when all. The, the neighbouring properties have lost those those features. I mean, these factors that humans recognise, and I say that's why you need a you need a surveyor. But this this I mean, at a high level, if an investor, um, a venture capitalist firm, or whoever, were looking at investing in the the, the loan book of a bank, they might use a a, a mass appraisal model uh, to to do a lot of that. Uh, difficult work. They might have their own risk uh, risk management um, process there, and they might um, they they might say, "Well, that's fine. We'll buy it." Or that's not fine. There's a couple of outliers. Let's get a severe on it. But I don't I don't see it replacing uh, mm -hmm. the valuers. You still, you still and, until they can recognise those things. That, until until. You know, we're such so far in the future, technology is so far advanced that they can recognise those things that um, uh, we, we humans see. I don't, I don't know how you, from such a high level. Uh, I use that term curb appeal, but you know how you could look at these things. I, I actually, my my background's been say on shopping centres, mm 
-hmm. And this is the same argument I had when valuing a shopping centre, that somebody in Wall Street will look at certain outputs, but only if they go to the shopping centre. I mean, they look at the balance sheet, they look at profit loss for 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 as well for the for, for balance sheet for company profit and loss. Look at how it's performing, but unless they actually go and see, oh, the food courts in the wrong place, the the ice rinks in the wrong place. Oh, there's another shopping centre that's the more convenient as a better range of shops these things you can only determine by going um you know i can go into a shopping center and i can tell uh if if it's been arranged wrong you know i can see well how are they cleaning this where's the security um there's no there's no cinema there's no entertainment so they're, they're, they're losing their nighttime income there's uh, the jewelry shops are in the wrong place they should be small they should be up front they, they were the passing trade where are the anchors well the anchor does not allow uh, the correct Footfall. So I, I can do that, but I don't think a, a, a computer model um, can do that. Mm-hmm. And you had another question about uh, lending, and somebody did ask a meeting recently about how we are teaching students and preparing students to uh, to the new ways of mortgage lending, the sort of aggregate loan or crowdfunding. Yeah. Uh, uh, is, that, is that what that question was about? Or yeah. was it? Um, well, I don't know. The belief valuers are early adopters. We react and we work with technology uh, rather against, um, mm-hmm. I hope. I think mm-hmm. is the, the only way to say that. Okay. David, we have to wrap the podcast up there. But okay. thank <laughs> you so much for coming on the podcast today. And I hope that's given everybody an insight into... Um, Number one, David's strategy and your career, which is awesome. And then also um, viewpoints around valuations, because that, again, is so useful for people who are listening. And I guess the key takeaway is that nothing can beat having a pair of experienced eyes going out and having a look at a property. Yeah, and, and also that, 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 so that the keyword there is experience and you build that up over time. You don't, I mean, we teach it. I shouldn't be saying this as a. I do say this as a as a, a, a working for the university. We can only teach that theory, but the best way to learn as a surveyor is to go around uh, properties with a more experienced surveyor, and if that means holding the other end of the measuring tape to begin with, that's fine. That's how you build that knowledge. That's how you build up that eye. So that 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 experience uh, has to be experienced. You can't just learn. I wish I, I wish we could go back in time so I could rephrase that better. <laughs> no, I know exactly what you mean. There is nothing that beats just getting out in the field as a surveyor and learning from the bottom up, gaining that experience. Because the more properties that you go out to, the more knowledge you have. Yeah, so correct. Thank you, David. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. And thank you, everybody, for listening. If you've liked this, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast it comes into your whatever platform you listen to your podcast on every tuesday morning if you love this please give me a good rating and leave a comment to tell me what your key takeaways are thank you for joining me this week i cannot wait to catch up with you again soon